Thank God it's Free Range. You are listening to Free Range Radio Friday with your host, Michael Elves. Pour yourself a beverage and turn up the volume because here on 101.5 UMFM, the weekend starts now.
as much as I, I don't care. 101.5 UMFM, this is Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio. I'm Michael Elson, kicking things off for us today. Vancouver band Sunday Morning with their version of Art Bergman's track, Junkie Don't Care. Uh, that one just released today. Uh, for more info on it, there's a conversation with the band on louderthanwar.com. Uh, plan that because uh, I'm going to be replaying an interview I did earlier this week on the book show Turning Pages with Jason Schneider. He's released The Longest Suicide, the authorized biography of Art Bergman, and uh, figured for fans of Canadian music, this is something that uh, if you didn't catch the book show, you might dig. Uh, so that's coming up after this next track. And then later in the show, uh, jazz singer Josephine Beavers uh, will join me on the phone to talk about her latest record, but uh, more importantly, about a new PBS documentary that she is the host and uh, one of the producers of called The Musician's Green Book. Uh, really fascinating slice of American music history. Uh, we'll get into that later on, but before that, New from Winnipeg at Cloud Lake off of the Little Wonders EP. Uh, this is a new project from Eusebio back in the day of Old Folks Home. This is called Work here on 101.5 UMFM. Things don't always work, but baby, you and me gon' make it Yeah! As
All right. Well, the authorized biography of Art Bergman is called The Longest Suicide, and I've got the author, Jason Schneider, on to join me to talk about it. Welcome to the show, Jason. It's great to be here, Michael. So you've written uh, several different music books in the past, uh, but none of them necessarily suggest you'd end up writing Art's uh, biography. How did... How did you land on art as a subject and, and in to, involved in this project? Well, I've always been fascinated by his career arc, I guess, and his life story going back to uh, when we uh, did our first book, um, Have Not Been the Same. That was with uh, Michael Barkley and Ian Jack. And um, that was that was when I first met Art. Um, I think it would have been about 1996. And he was actually the first, well, we all had, the three of us had different uh, different tasks, I guess you'd want, want to say about writing that book. And one of mine was to write about the Vancouver punk scene. So art was actually, you know, the where where I started. And um, I, I, you know, his, his reputation at that time was pretty uh, intimidating. So I, I was thinking, well, if I can, you know, do a great interview with him first uh you know the rest uh, the rest of the pieces are going to fall in place so <laughs> so um so yeah that was where we kind of hit it off and i got to know a bit of his life story and um over the years we kept in touch and um about five or six years ago i began working for him as his publicist and that's sort of where the whole idea for the book um kind of grew out of Okay. Yeah, I guess I was looking at some of your like roots music involvement and stuff, and not necessarily seeing the the punk connection. But obviously, that have not been the same. I didn't realize. I didn't know the division of labor on that project, considering the multiple kind of authors involved. There. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we yeah we 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 tried to keep that kind of a secret for for a long time because we didn't want people to sort of uh, say, "Oh, Jason wrote that" or "Michael wrote that." We wanted it to be, you know just kind of a seamless um, reading experience as much as possible. That does beg the question. So this book, obviously, <clears throat> there's like interjections from art in in the book, right? Like you've, you write the like primary narrative in each chapter, but then there's like these bolded kind of like inserts of him sort of commenting on, on what you've written. How did the idea for that as a, as a structure come about and like how did that work out like did you hand him kind of like chapters at a time and ask him to kind of like respond yeah well that yeah that was kind of a kind of the, the the structural choice i sort of made right at the beginning because um uh well where it all sort of started was um art and i we would we would have these regular kind of weekly telephone conversations where we would just kind of talk about his life you know for you know some of them would go on for like a couple hours um and the way he spoke well i kind of knew this already obviously just knowing him but um he the way he, he he speaks is kind of unlike anyone i've ever met in my life you know he he can go off on these tangents and um you know he'll he'll, he'll speak in these you know just very evocative sentences and um i thought well i think the best way to kind of represent that would be just to keep his quotes entirely separate from the regular text because i wanted his his voice to come across as uh as you know as clearly as as, as possible so 
yeah i i mean yeah i i, I think i was taking a risk with it but you know i hope it uh, sort of paid off so taking you know you start with him as an interview subject for kind of a like a comprehensive look at the vancouver punk scene you take him on as a client now you're you know his authorized biographer what is the evolution of kind of the relationship and like did it change dramatically in order to do this project like did did you have to adjust kind of how you behave with art um well yeah well i think it well the well the most important thing was just to develop a, a sense of trust between us and that yeah that developed over over you know years mm -hmm. um and you know as 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 the book explains arts you know had a lot of uh shall we say contentious relationships with a lot of people in in uh, the, the music business um so but you know working with him over the last five years you know we've really developed kind of this kind of small core of of, of people who've you know really been trying to help him um you know top of that list is uh Phil Cligo, who runs uh, Arts Label, We Work, and it was actually Phil's idea to, to 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 do the biography. He kind of motivated me to do it, just as a way to uh, help promote arts music a bit more and try to help him reach a new audience. Um, so, yeah, in some ways, it it you know writing the book sort of felt like kind of a team effort, um, and uh, and and. You know, first and foremost, I wanted the book to, you know, appeal to this kind of hardcore, you know, fan base that he has. And, um, you know, I thought, well, if I can make these people happy, then hopefully a general audience will will respond as well. So, yeah. So I guess to, to, to answer your, you know, original question, um, you know, once once Art kind of got on board with the idea of someone writing his life story, yeah, we all just kind of like pulled together and made it happen. So process wise, then do you have like one kind of major sit down with art or do you kind of ask him some things that lead you to other people go kind of fill in the blanks or the edges around that and then like kind of come back to him? Like what's kind of the, the process for you as, as you know, like the research and, and kind of like drawing it together side. Yeah. Well, like I said, the, the, the starting point where these, regular conversations we'd have over the course of i don't know it could have been a six months or up to a year this is all kind of pre-covid actually um so i had all this material kind of these hours and hours of recorded phone conversations and and yeah you know um that sort of led off to you know finding finding people to sort of expand on these stories and maybe offer you know a different perspective um and then yeah i would i would I, I actually wrote the book in chronological order because i knew that you know telling trying to get all the information about art's early years growing up that was going to be the hardest part mm. so um so once i got that finished um and i sent him that chapter and he approved of that that sort of began the whole uh rhythm of yeah i would you know every time i would finish a chapter i'd send it to him and he'd send me back notes and um 
yeah, we kind of, we kind of went from there. It was, uh, yeah, it, you know, he, certain things he would kind of dispute and then I would kind of tell him, well, no, I kind of trust this person's opinion. And, um, you know, eventually we, you know, we, we kind of find this, this sort of middle ground and, uh, but, but yeah, art, art had final cut on everything, obviously, you know, to call it an authorized biography, you would have to. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, you you mentioned, you know, starting kind of chronologically, like you back the train up even further than like Art's story, right? Like you back up and talk about his dad and, and you know, how the the story of like kind of coming to Canada and, and a little bit about kind of like his own background. Uh, was that through Art that you were able to kind of like, and, and was that an obvious choice to start with that, like to go pre-Art? Yeah, well, um yeah, well, well, arts. Well, yeah. When 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 art would kind of tell me these stories about growing up, um, yeah, it was it was, you know, I guess you know this this was sort of Vancouver and sort of the the, the lower mainland and kind of the, the late fifties or early sixties, which was you know a time I didn't really know much about. Um, so I was I was really interested to kind of get get a sense of what growing up in that time and place was like um so number one and then yeah just learning about his father um who just you know by all accounts was just this incredibly generous and you know intelligent person um who uh yeah who as 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 the book explains you know he escaped the russian revolution as as a child and that really had a profound effect on the way he viewed life and, and, and other people. And that and that rubbed off on art, obviously, a lot too. Um, so um so yeah, yeah, just, just finding out more about his father was was kind of fascinating. Yeah, I mean there were two sort of like salient points I drew from the stuff about his dad. One of them <clears throat> I mean that music did surround art in the house. I mean, even not notwithstanding the fact that his dad kind of like thought music ended with Beethoven, right? Like that he was you know, very much like an, a fuddy-duddy when it came to, uh, you know, contemporary music. Um, but also, w- when he starts writing, his, like, salient point that you draw on and, and quote is, you know, around, like, what a person makes with their hands is a contribution to humankind and not some market-driven thing, right? Like, that he almost sets the ethos for art's art in his own yeah. work yeah no i was that that was probably one of the biggest you know scores <laughs> i guess in my research was finding that that article that art's dad wrote for uh, mclean's which uh it, it was just so eye-opening like it all yeah like it almost read kind of like a punk rock manifesto um you know written by this guy who was you know had by all accounts little education you know, worked as a carpenter his his whole life, but um, he he just had this profound uh, sense of right and wrong in 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 the world, and was able to articulate it so well. So um, yeah, I mean, to make that connection between his father's beliefs and art's attitude toward creation and music, yeah, it it just made total sense. So did Art give you that piece from McLean's or did you come across that in researching Frank's life? Like, 
what was yeah that? no no i found it i i found it through my own research i uh -huh. don't think i'm i'm not even sure art was even aware of it so yeah when he read it he i i think yeah that that might have been one of the moments where you know after he he saw that i was able to do that he was like okay you know go ahead do whatever you want i totally trust you <laughs> mm -hmm. you mentioned uh you know starting with the the early stuff and go, working chronologically because you you know knew it would be the most work and you you did also mention you know art has contentious history with you know some people in his life was it the most work because it was trying to draw people out to talk about some times that were maybe difficult or like, cause I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, some of his earliest kind of like proto punk band mates and stuff like that. And certainly you detail some, some dynamics and some riffs. It, was it like getting them on record or getting them to talk about it? That was the, the sticking point or what, why you felt you needed to kind of work on that the first and longest? Um, well, no, it was just, you know, no, I, I, I think sort of that, that pre punk period, it was it was just a matter of there, there just not being a lot of information about his life then so um yeah so that was you know that was just kind of like a matter of like tracking down some people um i mean one of the you know one of the greatest uh contributors from from that time was uh david mitchell the um you know the original singer uh for uh the schmorgs who uh you know, he has has gone on to have this kind of amazing career in in education and politics and uh, fundraising, social justice. You know, to talk to a guy like that, someone who's you know, um, you know, extremely respected in his field, but you know, started off as kind of this proto punk rock singer <laughs> in the, the early seventies. You know. For, luckily he's you know he's he's totally fine with that he was able to tell me some great stories um the the Valdi story first and foremost yeah uh, <laughs> that one was great i didn't know that the genesis of rock and roll song but to find out that it was from playing a disastrous gig with an art band yeah Mo yeah mount, was, mount layman yeah, i think was, was the band sorry mount layman was that the band name really like, yeah, yeah yeah and well yeah they were also going by the schmorgs then too okay. just because of uh you know because they kept trashing them. venues and then having to call themselves something different to get a bo booking at another place i think right wasn't that exactly. essentially kind of the yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah it was a totally different totally different time and place yeah uh so he obviously was willing to talk was were, were there any people who like refused to talk about art was like is there any like lingering bad blood that meant like people wouldn't act as a source for this no and that was the most surprising thing actually because i i actually i i assume that there would be you know at least a couple people who would uh who would have that kind of attitude towards me um but no across the board everyone i i don't know i probably did between 30 and 40 interviews and everyone had nothing but you know the highest regards for art and total respect and love um you know even though well i mean obviously for a lot of people from that time back in the 70s enough time has sort of passed where you know they've moved on with their lives and you know had families and and, and things like that so um so any bitterness probably washed away years ago but uh but but yeah, I was 
I was frankly kind of shocked that yeah, no one no one had any bad things to say about him. Mm-hmm. Those uh, you know forty forty around forty interviews. <clears throat> do is there like kind of cross pollination? Like, does someone say something that is like, oh, I have to go back to so and so and you know dive into this topic because I didn't know about it till I you know spoke to person X and now I have to go back and, and kind of like revisit that. Like was, was there any kind of like cross cross pollination amongst the, the interviews that you had to sort of re um, resurface? Not, not really. I mean, there were, there were um, a couple instances. I mean, I think, you know, a guy like um, a guy like uh, Ray, Ray Fulber, who uh, sort of managed and played with art through, through most of the eighties. I mean, he was a significant figure in his in art's life for for a long time um yeah i mean they he he had sort of different different views of things that happened than that than art did um but but generally yeah i mean the easy thing about writing the book was that um art's life sort of you know when you kind of looked at it from the outside it sort of is defined in sort of these specific chapters, um, you know, from 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 the seventies to you know the punk rock era to you know going solo in in in, in the eighties. There seem to be kind of these like five year chunks where Art Art even said that to me at, at one point that he felt like every five years or so he felt like he would sort of cycle through you know another group of friends and collaborators and you know he was always kind of forced to start you know start back at the beginning um every year but um but but i mean you know by the time he met um sherry who who became his wife i mean she was obviously the the constant for about 30 years and uh you know, having having her her contributions were essential. I mean, I couldn't have written a book without her. Mm-hmm. Did Art have a good sense of like when you know those restarting after five year kind of cycles, like his involvement in that, or like his his uh, how his temperament maybe precipitated that? Um. Well, yeah, he did, but. Um, yeah, I don't think it, that that was ever kind of a concern to him. I think, I think you know, the biggest concern was always just the lack of money. Um, you know, he could like there were there were always people there. It, it seemed willing to kind of help him out. You know, as long as uh, as long as there was someone there to sort of pick up the tab, <laughs> you know, he, he he was able to to make make his music however he he wanted to. Um, and that, I, I guess, in some ways continues to this day. I mean, yeah, it's it just the whole kind of, you know, management side of building a, a, a career was never something that he he was he was good at. So, yeah, I guess a lot of that that changeover I was talking about sort of had to do with whoever was going to, you know, fund whatever project he was going to do. In reading the book, it seems like some of that changeover also is due in part to like what he's listening to. You know, right. uh, you have uh, one of the like bolded kind of pull quotes from from Art, like his response in one of the chapters is, you know, my repertoire may, became much more pointed after I heard the Sex Pistols in 76. You know, that 
you know, Little Richard's Tutti Frutti was like a foundational thing early on. And then, you know, a few years into it, here's a different record. And that kind of points the way or like not necessarily points the way, but just opens up his mind to like what he could do sonically. That, yeah. Like, he. Yeah, for sure. Well, I think I think the common thread with all those different styles was just, you know, kind of a purity and, 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 and truth. And um, yeah, that's. Yeah, I guess that, that that's mainly what I wanted to get across. Yeah, because you know you can go back to some of his his early influences, kind of you know from the starting with the British Invasion and kind of American garage rock to you know hearing the Velvet Underground and then you know Sin City by Grand Part by the Flying Burrito Brothers, Grand Parsons. That song from the moment he heard it, you know that's played a big big role in his in his life and creation. And then, yeah, of course, the Sex Pistols. Um, yeah, you, you you can you can look at all, and then you know later in the eighties, you know Paul Westerberg and the Replacements um, that had a huge influence on him too. Uh, but yeah, the I I think the common thread, you know, you can you can see in all that music is just uh, yeah, just 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 kind of a, a a quest for for truth and conveying life as it is i guess so realness or like yeah. ver- verite yeah uh, the other aspect of music that i, I did want to talk about because this was something like i wasn't necessarily familiar with but you detail you know the fact that a lot of these bands started like members of different bands started playing with each other in different permutations you know in part just because there were only so many local gigs that they, they could play and so this development of the F bands, right? Oh, we're on radio, right. so that's why I'm, you know, using the <laughs> PG version of it. But that they were just playing for the F of it was the idea, right? right? And it it seems to me like that, like ethos or or like you know, born out of necessity, but kind of done in defiance, really kind of speaks to like what art would do for, for the remainder of his, his musical career, like that 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 spirit was really kind of foundational. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's, I think that's accurate. And um, yeah, I mean, I, well, I mean, part of, uh, part of the research in, 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 in this book, I mean, even more so than when I did have not been the same, you know, learning about the Vancouver punk scene. Um, you know, I, I, I got into it way more with this book and just trying to get a sense of, of what it was like back then, the late seventies, early eighties, um, and yeah, it, it was Va- Vancouver was still pretty isolated. Um, yeah, there were only so many venues to play. There were only so many people who kind of like ran the scene. Um, yeah, it wasn't until kind of like you know the mid eighties when bands from the east, you know, actually made an effort to to go across Canada and these, and, you know, this, this, um, this touring circuit eventually developed where, where, where bands could go coast to coast finally. But yeah, it, it's, 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 it's amazing to think that that didn't really happen until kind of like, you know, the mid 1980s. Yeah. Cause even, you know, when he's with like Los Populeros, doesn't he like end up in like northern alberta working like in in seismology or something because they just like ran out of money i think that yeah that was the tour. yeah 
Yeah, no, that was that was uh, an incredible story too. Well, no, yeah, I, I mean, I knew about that story kind of vaguely, but uh, to actually get you know the version of it from from Rob, who was uh, the guy who uh, who actually made that happen, and you know he he, he provided a lot more uh, a lot more gritty detail about what that experience was like. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, bands bands back then it was it was it was hand to mouth. Um, you know, when you ran out of money, you had to figure out what to do, um, how, how to make some more. And and to Art's credit, um, throughout his whole career, yeah, he's he's always been willing to do whatever it takes to to kind of pay the bills. So um, yeah, yeah. I mean, on 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 one hand, you can look at you know the uh the excesses of his of his life i guess but on the other hand he's always been and he's he's he said to me on many occasions that you know being being practical and being uh um you know just just willing to do whatever it takes to survive that's you know a big part of his life as well yeah even uh i think i think it's on that maybe that same tour they end up in winnipeg and they're they pull up like late at night and they're, they're trying to, I think it was maybe Wellington's or something that they were, you know, expecting to stay the night at and couldn't find a place. And they all like end up sleeping in the, in the car. And it's just, yeah, I mean, it really sounds, I mean, unfortunately sometimes like when you read like uh, Bedini's on a cold road or something that like these stories continued even in like once we got more of a touring circuit in the eighties that, that, that those conditions and certainly <clears throat> it's, it's still hard yeah. for touring acts. Um, you know, coming out of this experience, what was kind of your, your biggest takeaway about art? Was there something like you learned about him? I mean, because you've worked with him. Was there something that you never knew about him that you were like, whoa, I, di- I didn't know this and I discovered this through this process? Um, uh, well, yeah, I guess it wasn't so much, you know, learning something that I didn't know already, but just getting a, just getting a sense of, you know, more more of a sense of who he who he is as a human being. Um, yeah, and well, I guess I, you know, I I I got to know him sort of as he's been, um, you know, kind of coping with these these health problems um, over the last you know ten years or so. You know, with his he he has osteoarthritis. And that's really kind of limited is his mobility a lot. Um, you know, he's had spinal surgery. Um, fortunately, he's still, you know, he's still able to play guitar and 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 basically function. But uh, but yeah, I think you know, just just seeing how he's been able to kind of like cope with that and uh, still you know make great music. Um, you know. I his, his his last two albums, uh, really the apostate and late stage empire dementia. I I really think it's the best work he's ever done, um, both from a musical and lyrical perspective. Um, you, you know his, his the way he's sort of grown and developed this this new kind of style of of, of writing that's sort of born out of his his, his health health issues. It's been uh, it's been an, an incredible to, to, to see and experience. So it's a uh, a reflection on his life, but not an epitaph. This book. Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. And and I mean, you know, I guess it's not 
giving anything away. You know, most people who know him realize that this year has just been, you know, a tragedy. You, you know, he lost his wife, Sherry, back in March. So, um, so yeah, he's had to cope with that. But, but you know, just talking to him now, now, now that the book's out, he, you know, he really, he still has that fire to create new music and um he's 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 working on things now and you know hopefully we'll we'll be um, hearing some new stuff next year for sure well the book is the longest suicide it's out through anvil press jason schneider thanks for taking some time to talk about it thank you michael my pleasure
Back here on Thank God It's Free Range, right before the break, new Christmas single from Winnie Richards. Uh, we've played some of her rock music in the past, but that is a mellow version of Silent Light. Going to keep it on the uh, Christmas tip here. It is, of course, December 2nd, and uh, Pilk Silk, the great Inuit throat singing duo, uh, just dropped a new song, their version of Ave Maria. Coming up after that, my conversation with jazz artist Josephine Beavers.
All right. Well, Josephine Beavers released her album Primetime in 2020. Uh, more recently, a uh, new PBS documentary, The Musician's Green Book. She is the host of that program that is now on PBS, and uh, she joins us on Zoom. Welcome to the show, Josephine. Well, hello, Winnipeg. How are you, Michael? Doing. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to I start uh, with the documentary. Uh, just because it's the most recent thing, and uh, I, I just watched it and uh, found it very fascinating, and it, it led me to a couple questions. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's a discussion around you know this book that that first started to to keep black performers safe on the road uh, when they were on what was called the Chitlin Circuit at the time. Uh, you had your own experiences with this book and with with that circuit, um, but how did you get linked into this project on this this documentary? Well, we were um, looking for a project to do up that started as an homage to the Howard Theater, which is uh, one of the theaters uh, in Washington, D.C., um, that welcomed um, black entertainers of all musicians, dancers, singers. Uh, and I'm from Washington, D.C. originally. So I wanted to give something back to the community. And so we started on this road as a homage to the Howard. Mm. Um, then we we look we we decided that this was bigger than one thing. We decided that uh, we could give homage to the musicians that made the Howard and the, the the Fox Theater and the Regal what they really were. So we 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 had known about the Green Book and we knew about the movie that was made about the Green Book. But we wanted to do a deep dive into really, really what it was all about and what it encompassed and the effect that it had on travelers, um, the musicians, salespeople, people on, you know, his family's on vacation. Uh, and it turned into just something beautiful, like the Musician's Green Book. Uh, we, we were lucky, we were fortunate enough to have um, Act people who were actually part used the Green Book and went through all the experiences and the challenges of the day, um, and they're still playing now. Some of most of them that are in the the documentary are still active now. Mm-hmm. So you you get them. To, you sit down and have what seems like kind of like a, a really collegial conversation yeah. uh, about this, but like for for the purpose of this documentary like did you have like some things you wanted to definitely hit on like like how much coaching or kind of like work went into that conversation or was it just that you guys all talked so well together with absolutely none this was all organic it was not scripted at all it's what musicians do when they get together Mm. uh in fact the idea of having the round table um emanated from a, a a gig we had in uh la at catalina jazz club in LA and we were in the green room and we were just talking and discussing things and we started talking about Count Basie and most of them had been on the road with Count Basie uh we're talking about um um we're talking about Harold Jones we're talking about um Nolan Shaheed we're talking about John Tittini we're talking about um just these 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 stellar performers that were that were on the road with them. And it started, the conversation started and it got so exciting and it was so joyful 
And I said, this is gold. This is really the, the, the reality of the Green Book. It was the reality of how it um, helped people survive and stay alive and do the music um, throughout the, gen- really throughout generations. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you, it, there is like a joy to that conversation, but obviously it's rooted in the fact that like the Green Book came about because of white violence on, on black people. And and yes. this was, you know, a, meant to circumvent the risk or at least, you know, mitigate it somewhat when you were traveling. Right. Yes. And, you know, not only for musicians, but for <clears throat> any African-American at the time that was traveling on on the highways, in the back roads to getting to places from one to the other. Um, just, you know, going to getting gas, you know, was if you didn't know where to go, um, like I said, you might you might not make it or you might not. um you might not get your gas. That's for sure. Mm-hmm. The the one like kind of jumping off point. I happened to re- recently interview Andrea Williams, who uh, wrote a book about Effa Manley, who ran the the Newark Eagles during the uh, Negro Leagues, and in talking about you know integration of the major leagues, that eventually that kind of sunk all the black businesses. That like the Negro League teams were black owned, and. In yes. in this documentary, yes. in, in the Musician's Green Book, you talk a lot about kind of like all the, the black businesses that existed because of segregation. I mean, it was like the weirdly like kind of positive side of it was that there was such ownership. Uh, yes, yes. Um, really, in order to, to survive, we had to make a way out of no way, as one of our comment, commenters said. Um, and it was really still an or, organic way. Um, it happened because we had to. We had to make a way. We had to make our own things because we weren't. In, we weren't uh, privy to all the the, uh, um, the the advantages that our white brethren had. So you just you just do what you need to do, and um, this is how we survived. You're. You, you mentioned that your grandmother hosted folks in Washington. Yes. That, that like yes. you, you yourself would have basically been enlisted in the Green Book as yes. you know a spot. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, I lived in Washington D.C., not far from the Howard Theater, and um, my mother, like I said, who was a jazz singer, or did I mention that she was a jazz singer in Washington D.C.? She had played with all the greats: Duke Ellington, uh, Count Basie. And she was she was a, a she was local, but she was known as the girl jazzing you could pick up. She was really really good, and in Washington D.C. Um, and we lived close enough that walking distance really to the Howard. So all the musicians that she knew and who would come through the Howard Theater, it was it wasn't it, it, that it wasn't on the list, but it was kind of an underground thing where people knew. And um, we we were living you know in my grandmother's home. Uh, and I remember as a young girl, all these people coming to the house. I knew they weren't, they weren't uh, any kin to me. They, were, they weren't cousins or uncles or anything. And I'm, who are these people that are coming to eat at the house? And um, I learned just a little later on that they were performers who were like between breaks or in the evening after performing, that they'd come you know, to, to rest, relax, eat, talk, and, uh, and feel safe and comfortable and, and, and wanted. Mm-hmm. So we did. I remember um, doing that for two, at least two or three years. I remember. I remember that. Right. Was there any part of the conversation in 
like that you had in actuality that didn't make the cut of the documentary? Like, was it was there any of that roundtable that just was like you would have liked to have included, but maybe because you had to fit it within the hour, you had to kind of pare it down? Well, you know, I think everybody's really aware of um, what African Americans had gone through in the past. You know, the pain, the 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 killings, the lynchings. I mean, we all know that. We knew know that existed. Um, but I wanted to make this a love story. Mm. I wanted to make it a story where we all loved each other. We experienced these things, but we were resilient and we loved them. And like I said, it wasn't scripted. Um, everybody just brought that, that, that joy to the table. Uh, we laughed about it. We joked about it. Even, even the things that were negative, we turned, you know, lemons into lemonade. Um, there's no use in um, going over the past in a negative way. We just made it a positive thing mm -hmm. of, 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 of surviving, of the challenges that we had, and of the, the like I said, the love we had for each other. Uh, we loved each other through all the challenges. Um, we loved each other by taking care of each other's clothes to the, at the cleaners and doing each other's hair and um, restaurants and 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 boarding houses and hotels there was actually a, an industry almost um, made because of this and it it grew it grew grew our um culture in a in a business way so that um and a lot of those places really still exist in fact uh in washington dc ben's chili bowl uh is a, a place where all the entertainers in fact everybody that you could probably think of uh who of note uh, that came through Washington, D.C., stopped at Ben's Chili Bowl that was on U Street, where Black Broadway, that's what they, ca they called it, Black Broadway. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, Mrs. Ali uh, hosted us there. And um, she's also in the documentary talking about the experiences that she had. And uh, there was another, young, uh, another gentleman, um, Rick Lee, who has a flower shop in the same area for the last... 40 or 50 years, his parents started it. And uh, these are legacy people. And we created legacies through all these experiences. So it was, it was, it was, a, it was a positive thing. We, like I said, turned lemons into, into lemonade. For sure. Uh, you mentioned your mother being a singer. I, I saw an interview you did recently where you discovered a recording, a 78 of her. Yes. And that yes, you're working yes. on doing a duet with her now, posthumously. Yes, yes. Um, my mother passed away on September the 20th and just oh, September, September 20th of last year and a week, just, just a, a week to the day, someone called my, 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 uh, my, my partner and said, I have this recording and I'm, he was an archivist of, of music and he was collecting all these things. He found it on eBay. And he tracked her name, Laura Joy, which was really her real name, Laura Joy, uh, to my website and, and saw that, that I had mentioned her name. And uh, of course, you know, my, my partner said, oh my gosh, we need, we need to have that. And it's the only recording I have of my mother. Mm -hmm. uh, there are two songs, it was uh, the 78 that he found, he bought on eBay, and then um, he sent it to, to, to us in a, a M MP3. MP3, yeah. And uh, it, it was it, it was it was it was really amazing. And uh, on that tune, our um, soon and a foggy day. And I remember, I remember those tunes. I remember her singing them. So we 
excited. Uh, we're, we're creating a new album right now. It's really done. We want the vocals and, and, and tighten it up. We decided to uh, do a duet together with my mom. We never, never really sung together before. And um, it, it just turned out beautifully. This new album is a more intimate album. It's, I call it, it's going to be really very, very sweet because of uh, how we recorded it. Uh, it's a quintet, two songs with me and my mom. It's almost, people say, well, that's, that's something like Nat King Cole and Natalie Do Cole did. And I'm, I'm saying it's the opposite because my mother on the recording was about 27 years old. And of course, I'm the vintage one. So I'm singing with my mom and she's the young one and I'm the older one. So it's a, it's a different, it's different. It's the same, only different. Yeah, and I imagine because your your instruments that are, are at different ages at that point, right? Like she's right. got that like youthful right. voice, and you've got that you know well uh, well worn voice. That's you know voice, yes. yeah. But it, it, but in certain on certain notes and in certain parts of the song, you really can't tell. I can't even tell the difference between her and myself. Hmm. So it's you know it's it's uh, you know when when you hear it, I think you're gonna like it. So I you're, think you're gonna like. It. You're working on a new record, but you dropped primetime in 2020. Obviously not the best time to release a record. Uh, you know, <laughs> some some complications with live live music in the interim. Uh, so in terms of kind of getting back out there and, and sharing this record, like, did you feel like you had to kind of cool your heels a little bit for a while? Like, I, I've got this record. I want to share it, but I can't fully. About the album primetime? Yeah. Well, you know, it, unfortunately, like everybody else, we didn't really have a choice yeah. because, of course, COVID. And um, in fact, we were at Studio 54, which is really uh, 54 below now, uh, in New York. Um, we had a show there on the 11th of March in 2019, 20, yeah. 20, 20, 20, And um, so... We had a wonderful engagement. It was well received. The next day, the very next day, they darkened Broadway. Everything shut down the next day. The next day. Mm -hmm. um, so kind of that was it for every, just for everyone. You know, all all the artists. You know, that was it. So it took us. I mean, and we 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 did some things. We did a few things. We did some some virtual things. But it's nothing like really performing with an audience or performing with a with a trio or a band or an orchestra. Uh, so we figured out, I mean, we got all this stored up energy um, and stored up desire, and uh, here we are, we're going full force. Was the decision for this, you know, next record to make it a quintet, like part of the like scaling back in some way then? Like like to just make sure it's... it's... Um, it, well, the music that I'm doing on the songs I'm doing are, are more intimate. I have a in, more intimate feel for this. Mm. Um, I've, I've grown some. I've grown quite a bit in the last four years. And um, I feel comfortable with the intimacy that you have with a smaller group of people. Uh, the first album we did, we did it with a 35-piece orchestra. And I tell people, I didn't really know the gravity of what I was doing till I walked into the studio at Capitol Records. And I'm um, like, oh my God, it's, you know, what have I asked for here? But that the uh, the record really turned out really, really lovely. Um, and it wasn't, we didn't do it really for heavy release. It was more, more, I wanted to find out if I could actually do it. 
And uh, my husband, my late husband, Bob Beavers, um, said, yeah, let's do this. Let's do this. He, he, he gave me this recording at Capitol as a 50th wedding anniversary, 50th birthday gift. Hmm. So, um, and he didn't know the legacy that he left. He left quite a legacy, you know, when, when, um, when we did that. Uh, working with an orchestra like that, you know, a 35 piece, like, you you know, in, in the documentary, you really, you know, watching like Basie and Ellington and like some of these like really big, big bands. Like, was it kind of like <clears throat> hearkening back to like kind of that childhood and, and standing side stage and watching your mom sing? Yeah, you know, it, it really was. Um, my first real experience with, with, a, with a, a big orchestra was at the Howard Theater. Uh, and I was there with my mom, Al Hibbler, who was a crooner of the day. Um, Unchained Melody was what the song that really made him him uh, famous. And in 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 knowing Count Basie and Duke Ellington, when those people were in town, my mom would take me to the theater. And in one instance, um, I was there with with Al Hibbler and his, his uh, ballet. And I'm standing backstage, and I'm looking at this beautiful woman singing her heart out. I mean, and she was fabulous. She was beautiful. And I wanted to be like her. And I wanted to run up on a stage and sing with her. I'm only like four years old. And of course, you know, I was leaning to go out and, and uh, his handler pulled me by the hand. He said, no, no, you can't go out. You can't go out there. I was looking down into the orchestra pit and I'm like, I can do this, you know, as a, as a, as a little kid. And he said, you don't, you just, just don't have the right dress on. So as a three or four year old, you kind of like, okay, you know, that's, that's a girly thing you've got to have on the right, right outfit. Um, and um, I, I realized later who that was, it was actually Ella Fitzgerald. So it, you know, and that really, really stuck in my mind. It was a, it was, you know, you remember things as a child. That was one of the things that just really stuck in my mind, mm -hmm. wanting to be on, wanting to sing. Uh, wanted to be on stage, wanted to be, you know, looking down at an orchestra and just singing my little heart out. You uh, currently, we're sitting here on Zoom. I can see a nicely decorated tree and then some Santas behind you. Uh, clearly, yeah. you're, you're a Christmas uh, kind of person. Uh, you've you just released a new Christmas single. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about it before we play it for the audience. Oh, wow. Um, Christmas Forever. I wish it could be Christmas Forever. It's a really, really beautiful song. Um, Nick Perito wrote it. Um, I don't think it's been released at all, but I, I think I stole that one. Uh -huh. um, I, I, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. I love the lyrics. I love the melody. It's really cool. It's, it's nice. All right. Well, we'll give that one a listen after we finish up this interview. Uh, the Musician's Green Book is out on PBS uh, as of, of now. And uh, I guess everyone should keep their ears peeled and their their eyes open for when the new record comes out but in the meantime prime time is available uh josephine thanks very much for taking some time to talk to us today oh thank you it was it was certainly my pleasure and uh, maybe we'll do this again after the next album comes out i think you'll like it i wish it could be christmas forever I wish that glow would never fade away With friend and loved ones near us Round the Christmas tree so tall We hear the church bells ringing 
If love and peace on earth would always stay, I know it could be Christmas every day. If love and peace on earth would always stay, I know it could be Christmas every day.
Back here on Thank God It's Free Range, the Friday edition of Free Range Radio, and off of a new EP out on Ninja Tune called California Holiday. That was Kaja Bonet with Keep Christmas With You. Before that, Josephine Beavers with Ed Vodica and Christmas Forever, her new single. My thanks to Josephine for taking some time today to talk about documentary, the album, and, and so much more. Uh, my thanks also to Jason Schneider, who, uh, of course, replayed his conversation about his Art Bergman biography, The Longest Suicide, earlier in the show. Going to pick the pace up a little bit here before we hand things off to After 8 Radio. Uh, earlier this week, I received a new EP called Erosion Experience from Creole Canadian artist Sika Valme. And uh, boy, it kind of reminds me, actually, weirdly enough, of Kajibune's other stuff, her non-Christmas stuff like Child Queen and the Visitor, uh, and also uh, Gabriel Garzon Montano, um, not just because there's a song about Mango on this uh, EP as well, but uh, just kind of the vibe. Uh, I'm going to play you a track called Diaspora to the Moon that really caught my ear. Then we got something from soul singer Alexis Evans' new single's called Do Something. The full length is not due out until 2023, but uh, keep your ears tuned. We'll play some more as we get closer to the date. And, uh, yeah, we got a little bit more for you before we hand things off. We'll be back here next Friday, 630 to 8 p.m. on Thank God It's Free Range. Delta.
Do something, do something, just take a call. Cause it's in your head. Really don't matter, but if you don't do something, do something to change it all. Change it all. It's in your head, and it's a good starter. But if you don't do something, do something, just take a call.
keeps 